When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This episode of the Birdshot Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. On this episode of the show, we've got part one of Upland Overlanding with Jimmy Lewis. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 209. Welcome back to the Birdshot Podcast, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to another episode. We've got part one of an extended conversation with Jimmy Lewis of X Overland on the show today. We will get to that, but I do want to thank Patreon patrons of the Birdshot Podcast, everybody out there making those voluntary contributions to the show. I appreciate your support, and a reminder to everybody listening, all those Patreon patrons are eligible for the monthly giveaways. Got an Onyx Elite subscription up for grabs this month, some exclusive discounts like Gumleaf USA and Upland Institute, the bonus episodes I've been doing with Nick Adair of the Gundog It Yourself podcast, and we get everybody set up with some Birdshot Podcast can coolers and and stickers as a little welcome gift. You can learn more and sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. All right, this episode will be airing the Friday. I am at Pheasant Fest. I'm getting this done ahead of time. I will mention one last time, if you listen to this right away on Friday morning and are planning to come to Pheasant Fest today and you're not doing anything this evening, you should definitely check out the Onyx 40X party. Party's being hosted by Onyx in support of the Pheasants Forever and Quill Forever mission. And here's the premise. For every single dollar donated toward Pheasants Forever's habitat projects in Minnesota, Pheasants Forever is able to match those donations 40 times thanks to PF chapters and partners in conservation. The result stretches every contribution into more quality habitat and more public access for all. At Onyx Hunt, they want to help spread this message and celebrate everything Pheasants Forever and Quill Forever has done to ensure we'll have healthy grasslands and birds for future generations. So, what can you do, the listener? Stop by the Onyx 40X party again, 9 p.m. tonight, Hyatt Regency Downtown Lakeshore Ballroom. It's open to the public. Beer will be provided by Lining Kugels. There's a live band from 9 p.m. to the end of the night. An opportunity to win over $25,000 in prizes from 20 great brands. And most importantly, for every person that attends this party and puts a pin in the favorite state map, Onyx Hunt will donate $40 to Pheasants Forever. Combined with the 40 times match, that 40 bucks turns into $1,600 of habitat impact simply by showing up and putting a pin in the map. So if you're hanging around the convention center in the Hyatt Hotel this evening, don't miss that Onyx 40X party. 
All right, and through the rest of the weekend, Saturday, Sunday, if you're going to be at Pheasant Fest, definitely stop by the Upland Gun Company booth. It's probably where I'll be. We are booth number 1315. We'll have Del Whitman there answering shotgun-related and gun-fit questions. I will also be spending some time in the Onyx Final Rise booth. Excited about that. I was scrolling Instagram last night and saw Matt Davis put up a little tease for something he's been working on for the past couple years. Might be a new pair of Upland hunting pants on the market this weekend. I don't even have all the details. If they will be available for sale at the show, I think they might be. So you're definitely going to want to stop by the Onyx Hunt and Final Rise booth to check out some new stuff from Final Rise. And come on down. If you're in the area and have some free time, it's all for a great cause, Pheasants Forever and Quill Forever. They are the gracious hosts of this whole shindig and hope to see some of you there over the weekend. All right, that's all I've got for updates today. I'm getting packed up and heading to Minneapolis tomorrow. So with that said, we're going to move into the conversation today with Jimmy Lewis of X Overland. This is part one of what will be a two-part conversation. Jimmy's based in Montana. He's a bird hunter. He does some writing and podcasting for X Overland. And we all know us Upland bird hunters can get a little obsessive about our truck setups and i thought this would be some good off-season conversation so part one of the show we're going to learn a little bit more about jimmy hear his backstory and really set the stage for the more in-depth overlanding conversation we'll define it and tee up part two of the conversation which will be coming at you next week but today we'll be talking plenty of bird dogs and upland hunting and next week we'll dive deeper into the trucks and overlanding conversation all right, with that said, let's welcome into the conversation and on to the Birdshot podcast of X Overland, Jimmy Lewis. Good deal, buddy. And we are recording on the Birdshot podcast. Welcome to the show, Jimmy. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, Nick, thanks for having me on, man. This is super exciting. I love your show and, uh, it's great to be here talking to you. Yeah, absolutely. I certainly appreciate that. And I'm I'm excited to talk a little Western upland hunting. And perhaps I, I would say more importantly for this episode, a little something different. We're going to talk trucks and rigs and overlanding, to use the appropriate term. And uh, I suppose we will define that at some point. But I think that's good off-season conversation. I think people will be interested. I know we've we've talked about trucks a little bit before uh, it has garnered some interest and I think many bird hunters are uh, specifically maybe the the type that listen to podcasts are pretty gear and uh, setup oriented so I'm excited to get into that today but before we do that we got to learn a little bit about Jimmy so why don't you take the lead introduce yourself you're a podcast host yourself at times and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself Jimmy and and some of the things that keep you busy every day yeah man um, I'm currently a podcast host with a company called X Overland, and they rose to fame by creating a TV series about overlanding. Uh, back in 2010, they started, uh, picked up cameras. Uh, Clay Croft is a filmmaker, and he and his wife, Rachel, built the business by literally grabbing some cameras and Toyotas and heading off to adventure around the world. Um, and so my background personally is in both um, outfitting and guiding uh, upland bird hunting and fly fishing originally and then I moved into education so I've always been doing some freelance writing on the side and that's how I came to know um, Clay and Rochelle Croft they did an article about their business and what they were doing 
And then uh, just a little over a year ago, they reached out to me to see if I was interested in starting a podcast with their business and doing some content writing, which I was. I was ready to get out of education and move into something new here in content creation. So um, I've been doing that for the past year and really loving it. And just, you know, going a little farther back, I'm originally an East Coaster, um, private school kid, all of that, and started out in school on the East Coast. But um, my dad and I made some trips out here when, when I was a little kid, fly fishing and skiing and stuff. And I couldn't wait to move west. Uh, even as at 12 years old, I remember saying, I'm going to move west and I'm mm-hmm. going to move as soon as I can. So a couple of years in school back east, uh, transferred to Montana State and graduated from MSU and just stayed here in Bozeman. Um, and it's been it's been a tremendous life out here for sure. No looking back. <laughs> No looking back, man. There there have been times, Nick, when I have, you know, I'll go back and visit friends and family. Sure. Man, it's crazy. You know, I'll be back for a week or so and then the itch to go west again. It's like it happens all over. Like I'm, you know, 22 and and pointing the Bronco west once more. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, and we were chatting a little bit. It sounded like so so there maybe was some fly fishing mixed in there, but as far as upland bird hunting goes, that was something that came after your move west to montana is that right that's correct you know i I grew up with fishing um fly fishing in particular and that's that's had had a lot to do with me coming out here along with skiing but um this this is the story right of how i got into upland bird hunting so i um as a fly fisherman i was tying all my own flies and it occurred to me that if i learned to hunt upland birds i could go out and have an amazing experience in the outdoors hunting wild birds have a meal to eat from that experience and then have feathers to tie my flies ah. and go catch my trout, right? Yeah. So uh, I'm a lit major guy and I read a lot of Thoreau and Walt Whitman and all the romantics. And I was like, that just sounds like the perfect holistic yeah. kind of lifestyle. Um, but my family, you know, we weren't hunters. Nobody hunted. And I was the first really to pick up a shotgun and, and learn how to do that. So, um, man, the, the journey of upland bird hunting to me was, was fresh and exciting. I love it. I love it. So, all right. I know I have fly fished, but that's as far as I will go with it. I, I know nothing about fly fishing, um, other than a little bit, I have a little bit of excitement and I've, I've dabbled just kind of randomly here. What, what feathers that you might be collecting out there on the, uh, in the covers of Montana are, are you mainly using? Are you still doing that? Oh, uh, I, I, you know, I do it some, uh, but nowadays it, it's been it's been passed on to my daughter, who is uh, she's almost eighteen and getting ready to graduate from high school, and she is um, she's kind of like the, the prodigy, you know. She unlike myself, she literally was was in a backpack while we were hiking the prairie with the bird dogs. My wife and I, my mm-hmm. wife loves to hunt, and um, you know we did we didn't put any ammunition in the shotguns but we would the, the birds would flush and we would just swing the gun and she'd get all excited about it so she's uh she's grown up with bird hunting fly fishing and she's now tying the flies and That's she's cool. a master they'll save pheasants you know pheasants are great yep. and huns in particular uh for soft tackles so uh yeah she's she's a she's got all the skills and then some. that's really cool yeah that's definitely something i would like to do i mean i have some opportunities here and of course the 
using the feathers i mean that's that's about as deep of a connection as you can get there and it's been talked about and written about and romanticized about as as you aptly put it jimmy but um you know there's only so much time in the day and um i've got that one squirreled away for maybe a different different stage in life but maybe i just need to get my boys going on it that's a good idea man i I tell you it's it's great when they get going on it it's it's a little activity for them and and they they can see really well you know i I just crested 50, Nick. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of things aren't quite like they used to be, but my <laughs> daughter is fresh as a fiddle. Everything works for her, including like, you know, tying tiny midges with her. Yeah. No need for eye support. <laughs> That's awesome. Speaking of things to, to take up time, I just, I mentioned it a couple of times. I was kind of on the lookout for a 28 gauge reloader, uh, reloading shotgun shells. I've never done it. Something I've thought about getting into. And I've had a listener that, He's kind of been on the hunt for me, looking for a used. These things are kind of. I think you could probably go buy one somewhere, but they're they're. I think they're in demand, just given the ammo stuff going on, and um, they're uh, they're they're fairly pricey. Not not too bad, but uh, the economics make sense if you're going to load a lot. But anyways, he's he sends me like eBay links like once once every couple of weeks, and this morning he sent me one, and the price was right and the condition was good, and he's like, I would. I would go for it. And I offered it. And I, I just, uh, right before you and I hit record, I got the notification that the seller accepted my offer. So I've got a 28 gauge reloader headed my way and, uh, another, uh, passion or, or not passion, but hobby to keep me busy, I guess, for the, these winter months remaining. I, I love it, Nick. That's, you know, that's yet what was some, one more thing that I've done since I moved out here. Cause I'm kind of a, you know, all in type of guy. Yep. Right? So when I decided to start upland bird hunting, uh, shot a lot of sporting clays to be, learn how to shoot. Had a lot of solid mentors, one of which is my wife. She's a former NSCA instructor. So oh, very cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I had to do it, right? Had to reload. Um, had to tie my own flies, even with big game hunting stuff, which we do to fill the freezer. It's like, oh, you know, I can maybe reload my rifle shells. So you kind of want to do all of this holistic stuff. But mm-hmm. like you said, you know, time is of the essence. And when I got out of guiding, which was very seasonal, you know, you kind of push full throttle, um, especially like being that I was fly fishing and an upland guide, ultimately, it, it was about a six to seven month season. And then it was just darkness of winter, really. And so, you know, reloading, tying flies, all of that uh, was easy to do. You work some kind of side retail job or something. But then I got into uh, high school teaching became an educator and time got more scarce than ever especially being a parent and all of it so i you know i'm finding nowadays with with this new line of work it's it's hard work yes but it's not like teaching that was just endless and so i'm finding like i'm starting to have more time again to tie some bugs and you know do some cooking and just things like that that are hobby-ish but that i really like yeah that's really cool well as somebody that just bought a, a reloader this morning and literally knows nothing. Now, I've got some good people in my network that I can lean on, but do you have any advice or what would you tell me? Uh, turn around and sell it right away or have fun? No, you know, I would say of all the DIY type of things you can do to save a lot of money and have some fun um, and even get your kid involved, right? Yeah, yep. they, they get older. You have one, one two kids? I've got two boys, two boys, four and almost five and one and a half, essentially. And I will say that one of one reason or one justification, if you want to call it that, to buy it is that I, I'm pretty certain my 
four-year-old is going to absolutely love just sort of the mechanism and, and to, he's going to want to see how it works. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, what, and, and it's like a little assembly line. Yep. So you can give a kid, right? Yeah. Simple thing to do. And it's like, yeah, once you get that set up and if you can set it up in a dedicated place in your house, um, it's actually something I think that does pay for itself if you do a lot of shooting. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, it's, it, you know, there's the spool up process and the initial investment, but you know, you're going to be raising your kids with shooting. Right. I imagine you guys do a lot of clays, right? And, um, that means over the next decade or so it's, it's going to pay for itself and it's really easy to do. You know, you can just put on a podcast. Now when I was doing all this stuff, Nick, <laughs> there weren't podcasts to listen to. Right. <laughs> and now it's like, Oh man, yeah, to put a podcast on and, you know, learn a few things and crank away and reload a couple hundred shells. Heck yeah. I, I definitely have heard from numerous listeners over the years that they have listened to podcasts. Well, doing all kinds of stuff, but yeah, d- reloading is one of those things where, yeah, that would be a great uh, pairing with a podcast to sit and reload some shotgun shells and maybe listen to people talk about bird hunting or heck anything else that you can listen to on podcasts. We're lucky in that regard. Oh man, for sure. You know, this is, this is a little dangerous, Nick, because now you're starting to start that fire in me again about reloading. I'm, I'm sitting here, <laughs> you know, kind of scratching my chin like, hmm. <laughs> well, you can bet there will probably be some future episodes. I got to do a little research on this, but there'll probably be some future episodes and conversations about it. So we'll, uh, we'll see if we can stoke that fire for you, Jimmy. Yeah, oh, fantastic. Yeah. Now you said you're, so I'm curious now, your wife was a former uh, sporting clays instructor what was what was it like being taught by her and uh, what did she teach you and uh, have have the principles and foundations stuck with you oh man uh you know i could write a novel about <laughs> were you a good student or a bad student <laughs> <laughs> i would say uh you know we're, we both were, were solid students of each other because yeah like you say you know usually when your spouse is trying to teach you something it doesn't go very well but when we were in our 20s and we were young and in love and, you know, had stars in our eyes for each other, I remember I met her in a fly shop when I was driving west to Montana, okay. <laughs> you know, one hour, one way or the other. And uh, we we hit it off right away. And her dad was super cool. And he's like, hey, how about you come sporting clay shooting with us tomorrow? And honestly, Nick, I didn't even know what that was. Like, he said, uh, yeah, Libby is an internationally ranked sporting play shooter. I'm like, what is that? I never met a Maryland girl who was one of those, but it sounds cool. That is and, awesome. Uh, yeah. I got to get your wife on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. So she, she actually, yeah, she was sponsored by Beretta. She was one of the top 10 lady shooters. And uh, I was like, sure, I'll do that. And she was in the fly shop because she wanted to learn to fly fish. Mm. So I was like, look, I've been fly fishing my whole life. How about? you know, we trade a lesson. I'll teach you how to fly cast. You teach me how to shoot. And that was kind of our quasi first date, you might say. And uh, a couple of years later, she was transferring to Montana state and we were getting married and starting this kind of crazy life together in the West, um, chasing birds and fish. That's a really cool story. I feel like you could write a novel about that, Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we might be able to. She, um, She's getting ready to head down to Seaweed now. She's uh, oh, the, yep. yeah, you know what that is. Uh, she's a sculptor, a wildlife sporting arts sculptor. So that's a big deal for her. And she's kind of crazy around here at the foundry and studio. 
Um, but yeah, we're still at it and I still keep some of her tips in mind. And of course, all of this now is passed on to our daughter who can outshoot and outfish us both. So that's so cool. I guess it's good. The torch has been passed. Does she, does your wife specialize in the wildlife art? Does she have a, is there a subject matter that she specializes in or just kind of lots of stuff that you see out West there? Or what does she do? I would say her specialty is bird dogs and ah. upland birds. Wow, that's so cool. So she gets lots of, yeah, it's pretty cool, man, like just to watch what she creates. Um, she does a lot of commissions of life-size dogs, like she's done a French Brittany now, and she's done um, an English Pointer and a Setter, and now she's working on short hair and uh, I think maybe a, a Vichla or something mm-hmm. like that. But, uh, you know, then a lot of upland birds, uh, just did a red grouse, which is super cool, and so, you know, that's what she grew up with. She she grew up uh, in the Midwest hunting woodcock and rough grouse and um, then came out here and learned all this. But it's a good fit for her because she knows her subject well. And, um, you know, it's kind of wild. Like when we started, she had never fly fished before. And yet she became a fly fishing guide when we had our outfitting business. We were both guiding and I never up and bird hunted before. And I ultimately got enough skills to be guiding that. So uh, that was our youth, and it kind of, you know, juggled juggled all that, and we're still doing it. Yeah, that's awesome, man. I, I am uh, I'm intrigued by by your wife's background and her interests and, and talents. There's a uh, that's a lot there. Now, I have is she on social media? Like what what I know her by her by her social media platform. I'm I'm I have somebody in mind that I used to see that did <laughs> sculptures, but I haven't been on social media all that much lately. So I'm just I'm kind of out of touch in that regard, but. Maybe I know her. If if you if you get on Insta and uh, you her handle is MT Sculptress. Okay. So you know Montana Sculptress, MT Sculptress, LizLewisMontana.com. Okay. Um, she, you know she could be an influencer, Nick. Like I mean, she's got <laughs> all the ingredients. She's got the look. She's got the charm, the talent, like all these things. But she's a Gen Xer too, and you know this is all kind of post her world Mm -hmm. so um my daughter who's already an influencer in her own little world like she's helping her out a lot and things are spooling up with the social world but you know a lot of her best clients these are you know older gentlemen and kind of you know not of the social media age Mm -hmm. so she hasn't really had to push social but i think i think she's she's trying to move it along a little bit yeah Cool. Well, maybe, well, maybe we could we could help with that on on the bird shot. But um, yeah, I think I, I th- I'll have to check it out afterwards. But I think maybe I do recognize the name at least, and um, certainly the the subject matter of the sculptures has my interest. So that's really cool to make make all these connections. Yeah, man, she'd be a good guest for you for sure. She's got she's got a story and, uh, and a lot of interesting things to share about what she does with the arts. For absolutely. I'll have to take good notes here and, and make sure that I, you know, we've got Jimmy's side of the story. We'll have to get her sto- side of the story at some point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's always fun to hear the different perspectives, that's for sure. So before we move into, I mean, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep the Overland stuff squirreled away. We're going to get to that eventually. But I'd like to hear a little bit more about kind of your ramp up in upland hunting and, and sort of the bird dogs and, and we'll, we'll talk about this most recent season a little bit, but how did the evolution, you know, we heard the origin here, but how did it evolve for you? Well, you know, that, that, that is something I'm, I'm really excited to share and talk about because, and it's, it's, uh, you know, the perfect confluence that will, will lead us into a more, you know, 
pointed discussion of overlanding yeah. per se and vehicle builds. Um, and, and that's because like for me as, as a young guy heading out West in the nineties, um, getting started in upland bird hunting, like once I got out here and, you know, I had my romantic dream of, of the feathers and the tying and that sort of thing. And yeah. we went on a, a couple of mountain grouse hunts. Some guys took me out for some blue grouse and I managed to get a couple birds with a Remington 870 Express, you know, very, very excellent, primitive stuff. Excellent. <laughs> it was kind of ridiculous, you know, thinking back, but I, I was, you know, you have to remember hunting period was new to me, right? So like that, that first grouse was like my first kill ever. And uh, of course, you know, I made a meal of the bird, had the feathers, but um, what I started to realize, Nick, is that, you know, the best bird hunting in the West was out on the prairie and the Great Plains. And that, that of course, was eastern Montana. And, you know, eastern Montana, central eastern Montana compared to southwest Montana and, and really all of the western part of Montana, like going from Bozeman up to Missoula and, you know, up to the Whitefish area. Eastern Montana is, is ironically, right? Because everybody always thinks of the mountains in the West and Yellowstone. Right. But Eastern Montana is a much wilder, remote place. And it is, uh, as you know, I mean, you've been there. It's, it's, it's a place a of bit, yep. big country and, and adventure. So, it, you know, I'd hear these stories from, from guys who are already out here and about bird hunting in Eastern Montana. And it just sounded so adventurous and exciting that I, I really wanted to do it. So, like, for me, a big draw of upland hunting became the adventure of it all. Yep. Just going out to these, you know, wild, remote places in the West and exploring and finding covers. And then the thought of, like, wow, you know, getting some bird dogs. Um, and once I started doing that, I realized, you know, everything about cubby birds and uh, shark tail and you know just the kind of country we were walking through. I was like, oh, I, I get it. You know, you get some dogs that can run this country and find the birds and go on point. Um, you know, that's that's the game here. So I, I gradually started learning about dogs. Uh, we started out with the German short hair, and that led to uh, I think we we got a setter, and then eventually I started picking up English pointers, which. You know, we all have our breeds, and yeah. I, I've just become an English pointer guy, Nick, because they're just so crazy athletic, and I, I love to hike for miles and go and go and go, and, and so do they, so yeah. it's a good fit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I can appreciate that without a doubt. I, I You know, I love my setters, but I think I think if I was stationed in Montana, I, I it's very easy for me to see a, at least a pointer being being in the kennel that's for sure just watch them run that country yeah yeah for sure and you know it's it, the thing is it is the country out here in the west is as you know it's um it's just harsh and rugged and wild and um you know i just find like the, the pointers and they can get cold sure yeah but uh i'll throw a it, it's i i it's kind of strange, but it, it, he, you deal more with heat problems out here, I think. Than I believe cold. that, yeah, especially the last handful of years, maybe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We we have a little French Brittany in the pack, and she's a tremendous bird hunter, but but not heat tolerant. And I I just see how she turns on and off with the heat. Um, whereas the pointers, you know, I throw a, a neoprene jacket on them if it gets a little too cold, mm -hmm. and they do fine. That's kind of like a wetsuit. 
but uh yeah you know they're just rugged dogs and then and then when they go on point uh i, I love the style I, I love the intensity and um but you know beyond all of that it's like you know we can debate bird dogs but for me uh, you know back to the point of just the adventure of going to these cool places exploring you know having these dogs that will run for miles and and then just like loading up my my bird vest so it's more like a backpack and just you know going out yeah into the country um that that drew me into bird hunting so much and my wife and i like we would uh when we were in our 20s and we had finished the fishing season you know fly fishing guiding all that and i would i would have some bird hunts but there would come a time where we get a sweet spot like two or three weeks and we just load up a travel trailer and head to eastern montana and um yeah, it was just it was it was about adventure it was about exploration you know yeah absolutely yeah i think i think a lot of dedicated upland bird hunters probably look at montana through a little different lens like you're saying they probably they maybe are much more apt to picture the plains and prairies of eastern montana than uh average joe picturing the mountains and and the big forests and stuff you're right. I never thought of that about how you know, the upland community thinks of Montana. They think of everything we're talking about, not Yellowstone Park. Yeah, yeah. But I, I will. I mean, I was probably one of those one of those people. You know, I think west. I certainly the first thing I would think of is Montana before I got a taste for sharp tail hunting and and all that stuff and the the plains and prairies. And yeah, now I definitely look at look at it a little bit differently. And I've never hunted in western. Montana. I would love. I would love to get out and chase blue grouse at some point. Just everything I see and hear, um, time of year and stuff. That looks like a really, really enjoyable hunt. How does your season break out? Are you kind of moving around, doing a little bit of everything? Is there one species that you tend to go after more than others? How does it look for you? Well, you know, you mentioned blue grouse, and and if you head this way for blue grouse, definitely look me up. Absolutely, um, I'd love to do that with you. Um, because that's that's become my favorite thing to do in early to mid-September because uh, you know a lot of guys and I, I went through this phase and who knows you know I could come back to this at some point but um, a lot of guys will head out to the prairie September 1st to be there for the opener in those mm-hmm. first two three weeks um, but really you know that's a time out there in the prairie that that is super hot uh, you can often get very short windows, just mornings and evenings, yep. and then they're, they're long days, so there's still a lot of daylight, so then you're sitting around, you know, waiting for it to cool down. Uh, rattlesnakes are out in, in force, yep. mosquitoes, you know, all that stuff. Um, and meanwhile, that is the, the perfect time, you know, that early to mid-September, that is the perfect time to be in the high country chasing blue grouse. So I, I've gotten, and, and also with blue grouse, you know, you, you you don't find as many people you just you know it's really hard to get to them even somebody who's in shape will be just sucking air uh, it's one of the most painful things you can do when you're actually you know your dog goes on point 100 yards straight up a mountain yeah and, and you're trying to get to them um but that's part of the fun of it you know and uh so i find like my season rolls uh, those first few weeks uh, of september i'm concentrating on blue grouse and you know, taking my rig into the mountains, trying to set up a nice mountain camp and, and doing that. And then usually too, you know, I would say like some of that country, I like the blue grouse hunt in, there's some valley country not far away and uh, there are still hoppers around. So I might do a bird hunt in the morning and then take my fly rod and, you know, chase, chase trout with hopper patterns in the afternoon. 
And then in the evening, if I have enough energy, I'll go out for another bird hunt or I'll just make camp. But September is super nice that way. And then October is that October starts to show up. I'm heading out to uh, central and oh, I would say, you know, not even central. By the time it's October, I'm heading out to far eastern Montana. Okay. Yep. Starting to hunt huns and sharp tails and get ready for pheasant season to start. And then I, I focus on that area until I get snowed out. And the last, um, that's where, you know, this, this season, Nick, has been really rough on me because um, the last two winters kind of lulled me to sleep. We were out, um, you know, in that extreme eastern Montana area all the way. And we spent our Thanksgiving out there for two years, um, you know, just had Thanksgiving dinner in a little motel with the family and bird hunted. And it, it was more like October. So I kind of had this vision this year that, oh, no problem. You know, I'm, I'm going to spend most of November back out in eastern Montana pheasant hunting. And whew, winter came in this year like the days of old. And yeah. it has not relented. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit uplandguncompany.com. Yeah, it was, uh, I haven't found the words to quite describe. It just, it seemed to, it showed up quick and then it sort of oscillated a little bit, but it was like, you never, it never released its grasp. You know, it was a, and not to say that we suggest that we had the exact same weather, but I do know that the weather that comes through there tends to make its way this way. And yeah, it was, it was an interesting transition into winter this year. I will say that. Yeah, yeah, it, it came with a blast for us here, and like you say, yeah, usually we get the first wave, and then it gradually works its way south and and uh, east. Yep. And yeah, come Thanksgiving, you know, we had all these plans to to do some more pheasant hunting, and then come Thanksgiving, you know, we were we were snowed in, and and it was extremely cold. And um, when you get that kind of winter weather out here the the problem in part becomes just getting to the bird covers sure you know it's the, you know the highways get super icy and uh, and the trans the transit to get out to eastern montana becomes tough um and i know you know definitely there's some guys with labs and dretars and wire hairs and you know they'll go out there brave the extreme winter weather to to chase pheasants and that's cool um but for me, like there, there is a threshold. I when it when it, the snow gets super deep and temperatures start to get, you know, around ten degrees to below zero. Yep. That's uh, that's too cold for me and the dogs. I I think so. I've started to look though. You know, if we're going to keep getting this kind of weather, I'm I'm looking at other late season places I want to travel to. Mm-hmm. I looked hard into Nevada this year, 
and almost went down, you know, around that Winnemucca area to chase, uh, chase Chuckers and Huns. But again, we had just a massive weather system come in here a couple weeks ago and just shut it down. But uh, yeah, it's it's a matter of trying to get creative, you know, late season. That's and and each each year it just depends what kind of winter you have really as to what you're doing. Yeah, any bit of flexibility and sort of open endedness you you can work into your late season calendar can go a long way because that's that's just the way it'll always be. You can't predict the weather and you never quite know. And sometimes you got to just go, but um, you can you can make some game time decisions that can really improve your trips. I think. So where are you located again exactly? I'm, I'm in Duluth, Minnesota, right on the tip of Lake Superior. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, this makes sense because I always hear you know, listen to Birdshot. I always hear you talking about, well, I don't know if we're going to get, you know, the storm's going to hit or we're going <laughs> to get shut down or not or when winter's going to arrive. And it sounds a lot like out here. Um, and I couldn't quite pinpoint where you're at. But, yeah, now that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. Well, it was it – was, uh, 20 below here last night, which I will say it's it's been a pretty mild winter. We got a lot of snow, uh, so that's cool. You know, if you if you enjoy winter, I've I've this year I kind of have. I used to kind of look sideways at snowshoeing. I just I didn't enjoy it so much, and I think mainly because I would see people around here. We have lots of trails, and and they're packed down. I see people wearing these big snowshoes on like a a pack trail that's like concrete, and so I was I would kind of chuckle at that, but. Now I've I've sort of I've gone off in some areas and I've created my own snowshoe trails and there's just something oddly satisfying about packing down and maintaining a snowshoe trail that me and the dogs run. So I've been I've been doing that, but it it hasn't been all that cold. We just got some cold weather this week, and as I mentioned, it was 20 below last night, which you know it's chilly, but it was uh the stars were out and uh, the moon was shining. So you always got to look at the bright side, right? Oh yeah, and you know when you get down that twenty below range, you know people who uh, haven't experienced that can't can't appreciate that. When you've been at twenty, thirty uh, below zero for a week or so, when the temperature gets up to say twenty degrees above zero, yep. uh, you're ready to put on a t-shirt. Oh yeah, <laughs> it is. It is all relative, and that and funny enough, we've got I think tomorrow, and this is this is weird. This has been this oscillating theme this year that it was 20 below last night and about two days from now i think tomorrow it's going to be 20 degrees above and on monday it's going to be like in the 30s so yeah i will be out there basically in a t-shirt probably on my snowshoe trails just loving it <laughs> Dude, I, the snowshoeing sounds great to me like you know to, that's a way it, there's kind of a like a I mean, I'm technically not wilderness. I, and, although you probably have some wilderness areas in the north or in the Midwest yep. there around, the, but it's just it's kind of like a backcountry experience. Maybe is a better way to put it. Yep. Where you just it's quiet. You're out on your snowshoes. You probably can you take the dogs with you? Is the snow? Yes. You know, is that possible? Yeah, I, I take them, and that's that's really what we're doing. It's our it's our daily exercise run, and they're coming with, and it they're using the trail that I have packed as well we're just we're basically in city forest but i've just kind of made my own trail and they have their little spots where they run off and they're we haven't seen any grouse this winter it's not uh it's not a densely populated area for grouse but there are some in there so the dogs are they're always looking for them and they're they're pretty much running the trail and if they if they are off the trail you know they're swimming through snow like we're pretty covered up this year oh that's uh yeah that's you know the snow's gotten so deep here that's that's becoming for me too where i run the dogs um 
I will say that, you know, I because I enjoy skiing, I, I have like a backcountry ski setup. So mm-hmm. you throw these things, the skins on there, and then you can go for a ways and then, right, ski down. And there are some places that if conditions are right, I'll take the dogs and I'll, I'll skin up a forest service road for a few miles. And then I, we all get to the top and I take off the skins, I click in, lock my, lock my bindings, right? Lock my boots. And I start a, a downhill down the road with the, the dogs all in pursuit. And honestly, Nick, like aside from bird hunting itself, that is probably the most fun I have with my bird dogs because <laughs> I can actually going faster than the pointers yeah. i'm looking over my shoulder they're <laughs> running for all their work you know trying to go and we've done that even at night sometimes with you know put the headlight on and they got their little oh, tracking yeah. lights they're flying down the mountain and god it's fun you know so i guess part of that's cabin fever you start doing yep. some crazy things in the winter yeah yeah you gotta you've got to embrace it obviously if you're going to live in a in a area that has winter weather you've got to embrace it and there's there's things that i appreciate about it i love the like when you are out wind is the biggest maybe the biggest detractor you know the temperature you know, whatever you can dress for it you can change your layering system it's the wind that really can put a damper on things but if you're out even if it's you know zero or 20 below and it's calm and clear i mean there's something so like it's like clean and sterile and it, I don't know. It's just a really interesting environment out there. Would you agree? Uh, I, I agree a hundred percent. It's actually been, um, in my, for, you know, in my opinion, it's been pleasant mm-hmm. to have some of that weather back this winter because it's, it's really that kind of, you know, uh, quintessential Montana winter weather where, you know, when it gets super cold, like, like just like you're saying it, the air is uber clear uh the sound is crisp yes uh right there's a there's a sound to it absolutely yeah the nights are are ridiculously clear and you know the stars and the moon and on the snow and so it's it's just like the best of winter in my opinion when you get to that even though you can't do a whole lot in it um it's it really is beautiful and then it's wild when it starts to warm up like out here with the big sky I can see the temperature change in the colors that show up in the sky. Oh, I and bet. So like, yeah. yeah, it was starting to get up to 30 for the first time in a while. And the sunset was just brilliant. Um, but I, I guess the, you know, to your point, like I, I just love that dynamic change factor in Montana. Mm-hmm. Just where you go from, you know, this true winter cold to, you know, nice enough to go fly fishing on a winter day sometimes. Yeah. I was wondering, like with the, we had talked briefly before we hit record the the expansion in, in Bozeman and sort of the growth out there and um, knowing that you've got those big running pointers, like are there, are there areas, you know, where do you go to, not specifically where, but you can get out and exercise them? I mean, how does that work with just the growth around that area? <laughs> it's, it, I, I took it on myself as a personal challenge to find hidey holes. Yeah. Not Bozeman, like you know, say less forty-five minutes or less, where I'm on public lands, so I can park my truck and and hike with the dogs. And I I usually go places where I can find birds, so I'll bring a cap gun along. Um, okay, cool. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And I've I've had some wins, but but because of the growth of Bozeman now, like I, it's some of the more extreme stuff I do because you know to find that stuff you really, really have to look for it. And you wind up in some of the weirdest places on public land that, you know, it's still public land, it's accessible, but it's just really off the radar. Yep. But 
you have these sweet spots, right? So like Bozeman right now is under around three feet of snow. But if you head west toward uh, Three Forks and um, Ennis and that area, this time of year, there, there's very little snow out there relative to Bozeman. And the snakes are all in the ground. Mm, yep. So, you know, but you, you so like late winter, like February, early March, I love to take the dogs out there. Um, and then later in the spring, the the snakes start coming out. It starts warming up. But then the snow line, you know, starts retreating. And so I just have my places that as the snow retreats, I keep moving up and moving up. And by mid-August, you know, I might be running around someplace like Bridger Bowl, way up in the high country. Um, but running the dogs, I, it's kind of crazy, man. But I, I'm all, I almost like that nowadays more than hunting itself because uh, I just like the cap guns, watching the dogs work. There's no onus to you know, yeah. come back with a third. Uh, I don't know. It's just it's it's really fun, and um, maybe that's a good thing. Um, but yeah, it's a challenge when you have dogs in crowded places and and to, yep. for a little bit of comedy. My my wife and daughter finally convinced me to take the lads to our local dog park, which is sizable. You know, it's like 20 acres and okay. all fenced and everything else. But my God, you know, there's everybody there with poodles and kids and sledding and all this stuff. And here come, here come the English. <laughs> and all I keep hearing from people is, do your dogs ever stop running? <laughs> like, no, no, they don't. <laughs> nope, they got a lot left in the tank too. <laughs> uh, yeah. They do. It just takes the edge off them. That's all. They they need about two to three hours of, of hard going. Yeah, that's funny. Well, all this talk about winter weather, I'm still I'm still daydreaming about the September blue grouse hunting you mentioned, and I I I was curious as you were talking about it. The September seems to me to be like uh, out there would be just an amazing cast and blast kind of month, especially early season. Like you were talking, if you've if you're in the West, you know, why would you go East to, to hit the heat on the Prairie? I mean, it sounds like you've got that dialed in as far as getting up into the high country and, and playing with that temperature range a bit, chasing blue grouse and maybe catching some trout in the afternoon. That sounds amazing to me right now. Dude, it's, it's the best. Like it's really one of my favorite times of year. You know, to the theme of, of overlanding and, and get into that a little bit with you, know, with what I'm doing now for work. I, I have the ability to to pretty much, you know, take off for a couple of weeks, two, three weeks if I want to. And um, I've even thought of maybe getting a Starlink set up so I can do things no matter oh, where yeah. I'm at. Um, and just, you know, just go. And so like this this fall, I'm, I'm planning on at least like a, a two-week run uh, chasing grouse and casting blasting, doing what we're talking about. And it's it is just... Yeah, it's just an ideal time of year for for the things I love, right? When you think about upland upland bird hunting, fly fishing, and wild camping, um, and the weather's gorgeous. You know, it's it's it just doesn't get any better than that to me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think yeah. On on that note, you kind of teed us up there. Let's let's transition a little bit and kind of wrap in some of the overlanding conversation and let's um that's a term that i've become familiar with and i i have an idea in my mind of what it is but why don't you define overland for us jimmy yeah sure I, i'll do my best um <laughs> i've written some blogs on this and done some podcasts and in fact on our series i think our very first episode was what is overlanding there you go because <laughs> it's, it's almost comical nowadays uh trying to define this but 
there is there is a conventional definition for it, which I think is worth sharing, and it can be found um, in the places that have you know a deep history with overlanding. Like uh, there's a publication, uh, fantastic, called Overland Journal, and uh, Scott Brady's publisher, and he produced the definition that we kind of built ours around, and that is overlanding is uh, self-reliant travel by vehicle mainly in remote areas for extended periods of time and here's here's the part that gets controversial like among overlanders and people doing this is and that is uh, usually involving international travel mm, okay right so so fundamentally the foundation of overlanding is somebody who sells their house um, equips their four-wheel drive vehicle to be able to live out of comfortably, you know, reasonably comfortably, uh, not RV level, but, you know, comfortable enough for like a nice backpack camp type of thing. And um, they want to see the world, right? But they don't want to fly it, fly it. They want to travel it over land. And they want to see the more like rugged and remote areas of the world. So they head off in their vehicle and, you know, someone might say, uh, head up to Alaska and then turn around at Prudhoe Bay and start working their way all the way down to Ushuaia, the southern tip of uh, uh, South America there, crossing many, many borders, camping in lots of remote areas, uh, seeing the culture, you know, experiencing the travel. And uh, even at that point, then they might put their, their rig on a, on a boat and head to Africa and, and just keep going. Like some overlanders have been living that lifestyle for, you know, a couple of decades and literally like raised for kids doing it. So, you know, kind of like, like modern day gypsies in a way. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so that would be like the core of it, Nick, right? The really the hardcore puritanical kind of, you know, the puritism of, of overlanding. But since then it is, it is evolved really into what you might call, um, vehicle-based adventure is something that people are trying to define it as now. Yeah. You know, and, and this is another key part of the definition I should put in there for everybody. It's in, in, in overlanding, the journey is the goal, not the destination. Yeah. Yep. Right. So I, I think for me, I've had to sort all this out for myself and I'm still doing it. But I think for me, that's at, that's at the heart of overlanding and, and what I take home is that element of the definition, which is, you know, the journey is what it's all about. It's not, it's not the arrival. And I think you can apply that to, to so many forms of adventure and things that we do. Right. Yeah. Uh, you've probably made the connect. I mean, uh, the first place my mind went and it's because people say it a lot, you know, when you're bird hunting, it's not necessarily about the bird in the bag. It's, you know, it's the, it's the dog working the cover and the point and everything leading up to that. I mean, there's an obvious parallel there and I haven't thought about it much, but I'm sure you could draw that elsewhere as well. Yeah. A hundred percent. And so, you know, what, what I, I think now, like the, the popularity of overlanding that, you know, has made the term relevant, um, is, is people like applying all of the principles of overlanding but not necessarily traveling across borders. Yep. Right. So, um, and and I think there's you know so what we're 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 using the term domestic overlanding and regional overlanding and things like that. But it's yeah, it's like 
if you want to, the, the difference you might say is the difference between hopping on a plane and flying to Phoenix and then going from there uh, versus like going the overland route to the south. Like for me out here in Montana, right? Like taking an overland route down to Arizona would mean avoiding the highways at all costs and looking for the most interesting way through remote areas to work my way from Montana all the way down to Arizona. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you can probably start to see why this mindset and building vehicles to be able to do this would be a good fit for, for bird hunters like myself. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. That's, it's funny the, just picking up on the, sort of the sentiment, you know, the like with, within every culture, there's subcultures, and I could. It's easy for me to see how, you know, there would be there would be the overland purists and 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 that dynamic. Not necessarily that that we're concerned about that here today, but I, but I always, it, it had an international feel to me that word for a long time until I would say recently now where it's you've, where you got this domestic overlanding and. I think now the way I'm thinking about it is is more on the side of gear and trucks and setups, which I think you know the popularity of that has grown of late, and probably just due to the world shrinking via technology and communication and people being able to share information and share stuff very easily. I think that's probably fueled a lot of it. Would you agree? Oh yeah, for sure. You know, I what 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 got me on board, like to reach out to you, to, to broach the subject yeah. of discussing overlanding in the context of up and bird hunting was a podcast you did with a guy. I'm, I'm trying to remember his name. It, it was uh, Justin, Justin Barkley. I think he was going out yeah, to Montana. Yeah. Yes. Um, I, I listened to that and I, I researched his story a little bit and what he was doing and how he had set up his rig. And, um, I, I thought, my God, like he he's taking whether he knows it or not, he's taking overlanding principles of vehicle build. Right. Yep. He's applying it to bird hunting and he's living like an overland lifestyle <laughs> with through bird hunting. And uh, I thought, man, you know, that's probably something that a lot of guys and gals, um, you know, a lot of upland hunters would love to do. Mm-hmm. And, and if they're not going full Justin Barkley and, you know, living in the field and that's his, his house. Um, they might just want to go out into the field for a week at a time. They might want to, you know, just once you get to some of these extremely remote areas of public land, it's such a drag to have to then, you know, at the end of the day, go all the way back to some little town to stay usually in a cheap motel, um, not the best arrangements most of the time. And how much nicer to be able to just make a comfortable camp and, and yes. have everything you need for you and your dogs for a night or two. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, and that brings up a good point, which is kind of the spark for the conversation is that, you know, a lot of times the way it works is, you know, it takes somebody like uh, Justin or heck, uh, an overlander who's basically made it a lifestyle, who's doing this stuff, like they're all in, they're going to learn the tips and tricks and hacks and things be out of necessity that then we can all sort of draw on and work into our own weekend or, or week long trips. And, and that's what we're hopefully going to get into. A hundred percent. You know, that, that's where we, I think we owe say like the overlanders uh, or anybody in that world, you know, the van lifers, even like yeah. I know just kind of alluded to them. Mm-hmm. Anybody who's made the plunge, right. And just made the commitment because we owe them a debt of gratitude 
because um, we can draw so much from what they've learned. And, and that's what I've done, right? Like I'm, I have never, according to the definition, gone overlanding, ironically. Um, but I have spent the last 30 years exploring the West out of my, my pickup and my adventure motorcycle and all in a quest to find the best bird hunting spots and the best fly fishing spots and beautiful places to camp. Um, and, and you know, I began doing all this before overlanding was even a word or anyone even really knew what right. it was about. It wasn't mainstream. But, um, you know, I, I remember getting so excited about building out my, my pickup for upland bird hunting and in these remote places. And like I said, you know, before I knew anything about overlanding, it was just really exciting to try to customize my rig so the dogs and I could be comfortable on long extended journeys and in, in these remote rugged areas. So those those early upland trucks of mine were were kind of like quasi overlanding builds. What uh, are there any uh, extremely memorable uh, successes or failures with those early rigs? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, I I remember there was a time like the failure may have been. My wife and I were were trying to do this kind of thing, and uh, we you know we'd see he just yeah, gosh I mean when we were out there wasn't social media there wasn't right. all wealth of information right to learn from so it'd just be some guy show you like a print picture like a four by six of you know a few dudes and and some bird dogs and a bunch of pheasants and a wall tent they're like yeah we're somewhere out there you know camping in eastern Montana and look at this. And so we're like, oh, I guess that's it. You know, you need a wall tent yeah. and pickup trucks. <laughs> we at one point we had this old red pickup truck and a trailer and a wall tent and some kind of wood stove thing. And I remember like it's it's a super cold night. The dogs are cold and we're in this tent. I'm looking at my beautiful young wife and she's wrapped in this mummy bag like it's a cocoon. And we're <laughs> thinking the whole thing's gonna burn down and they're and they're there were in some ranchers bull pasture and the bulls show up in camp and oh, start man. pushing on. And I'm like, what are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we, you know, we kind of started with, with some very uh, primitive rough setups because we, you know, neither one of us grew up with camping either. So okay. camping, yep. that was all new and tons of stuff to learn, but that, that evolved. And we, we tried lots of different platforms and I think our, um, what we evolved into that was probably the biggest win was when I was guiding bird hunts and fly fishing and all that, I, um, I got a Crow River dog topper and I had that custom built and I put it on a three quarter ton Chevy pickup. Um, and that, that rig, you know, it, it provided comfortable housing for the dog. We had an auxiliary battery system. So we had a fan, the topper was insulated and I was amazed at how like it could be 90 degrees but with the fans going and all the insulation that topper had, you know, it was actually quite, it was at least air temperature. Oh yeah. That's yeah. nice. Yeah. It makes a huge, the, the sun in the West is just so intense yep. that, you know, it makes a huge difference and we had water. And uh, so we, we had living arrangements for the dogs. And then we, we towed a conventional 21 foot camper trailer at that point, which a lot of people have done do. Um, but the difference is like, even though that was a great setup, you know, we had a place to live and then we'd run around with the truck. That camper always limited us to having to use like a campground in a town or places that were very easy to get to. 
Um, you couldn't take a rugged two track and go wandering back into BLM for a couple miles and set up camp. And so even though that was our best setup, you know, that was pre-overlanding, pre-understanding, like vehicle-based camping and adventure. And so we were, our, our living and our camping was limited to this kind of conventional RV-ish type camp array. Yeah, got it. So I, I can I can imagine that if if you are pulling a camper, you're not overlanding. Is that was would you draw that conclusion? Is that like Correct. how you define it? Okay. I would with, with one caveat, right? Um, a camper like I'm describing is is a travel trailer. Yeah. You know, you buy an RV center, um, and and they're nice, right? They got lots of amenities, but they're usually very cheaply built and um, they don't hold up very well to any kind of rugged roads and they're very heavy. And like you said, you're not overlanding. Um, now a, a platform, like I'm uh, right now, I'm at a stage in my, in my life and, and career and all the things I do that, that I'm, I'm looking, you know, I'm sitting here on a scratch pad all the time, like theorizing the ultimate upland bird hunting, fly fishing, overlanding setup. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of, lots of different configurations I have, but as far as trailers go, they do make really, uh, amazing overland trailers. Okay. And these are very simple trailers, very ruggedly built that you can almost take anywhere. You could take a Jeep. And, um, once you get there, you know, they, they'll have like a pop-up tent or a fold-out tent and everything you need for, for cooking and refrigeration, all, all the, the basics. But as a bird hunter, you know, one one way I think that would work out really well is you could kit out your pickup for the dogs in your gear and then find the place you want to make base camp right. and leave that overland trailer and then just right go out with your truck. So that's that's something I'm looking into also. Yeah, very cool. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. And if you really love the show and want to contribute above and beyond what you already do by listening, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.